Well, we have been working our way through Luke's gospel, and as we've been doing that, especially these last few weeks, we've seen so many significant things. We've seen Jesus um, telling his disciples very clearly, very point blank, that he is the Messiah, that he's the Christ, that he is God in human flesh. And then and then he, he tells them, yes, he's the Messiah, but he, he's not going to do that which they expect him to do. You see, they expected him to come and to to conquer the Romans, to throw them out and establish a kingdom. But Jesus tells him, no, I came to suffer. I came to suffer and to die in your place and for your sin. And then he told them what it would look like for them to follow him. Because that that changes, doesn't it? If you're following a Messiah who is going to be the conquering Lord, that looks like one thing to follow him. It looks like an entirely different thing to follow the Messiah who has come to die on a cross in our place. So Jesus has told his disciples about all of this. And now, now in our passage this morning, he shows them. He shows them that what he said about himself is true, that it's real, that he really is God in human flesh. He's the Messiah. And he does this by giving them just the briefest glimpse of his heavenly glory. So again, where we pick up in, in chapter 9, there in verse 27, turn there if you will, uh, we're actually, where we're going to pick up is the, it's the last sentence of, of this discussion that Jesus had with his disciples about what it would mean to follow him. And then eight days later is the bulk of our passage of what takes place as he shows them that what he said about himself is true. Let's do this. Let's turn to Luke chapter 9, find verse 27, and I'm going to invite you to stand as I read our passage for this morning. It's Jesus speaking as Luke records for us, beginning in verse 27. Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. About eight days after this conversation, he took along Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, they appeared in glory and were, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Peter and those with him were in a deep sleep, and when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who were standing with him. As the two men were departing from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let's set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. 
not knowing what he was saying. While he was saying this, a cloud appeared and overshadowed them. They became afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. After the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. They kept silent and at that time told no one what they had seen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, I pray that this morning we would receive your word. That you and you alone are worthy and have authority to not just speak into our lives, but over them. To not just give us advice, but Lord, to command us. Give us hearts willing, Lord, to submit to you and to worship you with the living of our lives. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So if you remember where we left off last time, Jesus was finishing up uh, this conversation that he had with his disciples as he had been teaching the, the crowds of people, uh, those who wanted to know what it meant, would mean to follow him, to be a follower of the Messiah who would come to die in our place. And he, he wraps up what he says to these followers with a rather mysterious, almost cryptic statement there in verse 27. Jesus says this, he says, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Well, what in the world is that supposed to mean? What did Jesus mean by that? What was he talking about? You know, three of the four Gospels record this statement of Jesus for us. In Matthew chapter 17, Matthew phrases it like this, that Jesus says they would see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And Mark 9 puts it this way, that they would see the kingdom of God come in power. It's all the same thing. It's, it, it's all what he was talking about here of Jesus being glorified. And you know, it's interesting because in each of the Gospels where this statement is recorded, it is followed immediately by this event that we call the Transfiguration. So really, it's not too hard to figure out what Jesus was talking about. I mean, the Gospel writers make it rather simple for us. It's talking about the disciples seeing Jesus transformed before their eyes. You see, the kingdom of God is wherever God's rule and reign is glorified. And so when they see Jesus in his glory, that was it. That's what Jesus was saying that some of them would see. It was the kingdom of God come with power. I want you to understand this. Every last human being will one day 
see Jesus in his glory. Did you know that? Believers, unbelievers, doesn't matter. We will all see him in his glory. We will all stand before him in eternity. 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul writes this. He says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. You see, on that day, we will all see him with his glory revealed. Then, however, we will no longer be able to do anything except submit to him. That's how great his glory is. That's how powerful he is, is that in that moment, on that day, when we see him with his glory revealed, there will be no ability to do anything other than worship him. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He says, it won't mean anything to choose to kneel when you can no longer stand. That is why he gives us the opportunity today to worship him. That's why he asks us today to choose to submit ourselves to him before we see his glory, while we can still choose it freely. You know, one thing that we need to, to think about is the fact that, that worship is not something that just automatically happens because you come to church. But rather, worship is an act that you must choose. It's something that you have to decide that you are going to submit yourself to him. You see, worship is an attitude of the heart. It's not merely an outward act. You know, it is expressed by singing, by standing, by raising our hands or by kneeling. These are all expressions of worship, but they are not worship itself. Worship itself is a heart condition. It's a choice to submit our will, to submit ourselves to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Worship is a condition of the heart. Well, as promised, in the very next verse, verse 28, Luke recounts the revelation of the kingdom of God, that thing that Jesus had said some of them would see. It says about eight days after this conversation, Mark says six days. Well, that's about eight, right? And so about eight days after this conversation, he took along Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. So these three of the disciples, Peter and his, his, his brother, and this close-knit group, these three that seem to accompany Jesus more often than any others, they go up with him on the mountain, and while Jesus prays, they fall asleep. But while Jesus prays, he is transformed. 
Jesus begins, well, how else do we put it? To glow, to radiate purity and goodness and power. Uh, Matthew 17 uh, describes it this way. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. Hey, God, this was not some subtle change where, you know, Peter leans over to John and says, does he look different now? No, this was a blinding light. This was, this was a, a shattering thing for them to experience. You know, quite honestly, the descriptions here of Jesus, they sound like the descriptions that we read of the very presence of God. Think of Psalm 104. There it says, O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment. It sounds like the way the first Timothy chapter six describes God. And listen to what Paul writes there. King of kings and Lord of lords who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light. Now, Normally, Jesus appeared to be just another man. Because as Paul explains to the Philippians, Jesus, who was in very essence God, emptied himself. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself. He humbled himself so that he wouldn't even stand out in a crowd. But here, here in this moment, he gives his disciples a glimpse of his glory. He allows his true nature, his very essence, to shine forth. That word transfigured, more precisely, it describes a change that though it is visible from the outside, it originates from the inside. So this was not Jesus receiving power. You know, he he plugged back into home base and became glorious. No, 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 no. This is the glory that was within leaking out. It was Jesus revealing the very nature of who he is. And what becomes immediately evident to the disciples and to you and to me is that Jesus is not like us. He is not like us, and I think that would be a good thing for us to remember. It would be good for us to remember the reality of Jesus' glory because, you see, he is not our equal. He is not your buddy. He is God in human flesh who is worthy of our respect, our greatest honor, our deepest reverence, and our unlimited worship. He is God. One more thing before we move on to verse 30. This same transfiguration is ours in Christ. 
I wouldn't believe it if Scripture didn't declare it to be true. But listen to this. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord. So on that moment, on that day, oh, that we long for right now, that day when we stand face to face and we see the Savior, that there is going to be something that is going to happen. There is going to be a transformation, a change that takes place, and we will be transformed. And it's that same word. It's that same word because, Christian, you have dwelling within you God's Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit is going to begin a transformation within you in that moment that is beyond anything that God has done so far. And as Paul says to the Philippians, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. That that day, that when we see him face to face, there is going to be a transfiguration, a transformation that will take place within the believer, that we will be transformed, look at this, into the same image. The same image is what? Jesus. Jesus. We will see him, and we will be made like him. It's too good to believe, but it's in his word. We who are so messed up, so broken, and so weak will be changed to be like our Lord. Romans 12, 1 and 2 talks about much the same thing. There, Paul says this, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy. In other words, because of what we know about Jesus coming and taking our sin, because of the cross, because of his great mercy for us, Paul says, I urge you to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Live your lives no longer for self, but now offer the living of your life as a sacrifice to God, which God will find to be holy and pleasing. That confuses me because my life is a tad less than that at times. And yet, here it is. Because I'm covered by the grace of God, because I am clothed with Christ because I am covered by his mercy. This sacrifice of the living of my life is holy and pleasing to God. And this is a spiritual act of worship. And he says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Okay. What Paul is saying here is, we don't do what they do. We don't think like they think. We don't decide like they decide. We have a different way to get there. We have a different standard that we meet. He says, don't be conformed or pressed into the mold of this world, but be transformed. Guess what? Same word again. Be transfigured by the renewing of your mind. Dear friends, understand this. Christianity is not a self-help program. It is not a program of personal moral reform. It is a supernatural connection with God. There is a supernatural dynamic to what happens when you get saved. It isn't just about you turning over a new leaf or trying harder or getting it right or getting religion. It's about God invading your life and changing you in ways that you could never change yourself. So, 
Jesus is transformed. He is transfigured right before the disciples' eyes. Verse 30, suddenly two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, and they appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And Peter and those with him were in a deep sleep. And when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the, and the two men who were standing with him. So Peter and the others in the midst of all this wake up and they see Jesus radiating his glory and they see him having a conversation with Moses and Elijah. So how did they know that it was Moses and Elijah? I have no idea. I mean, maybe they were wearing name tags. I, I don't know. Maybe they recognized their picture. No, that wouldn't work, would it? Maybe they just knew. Maybe Jesus told them. Regardless, they see two men. And it's very clear that they're different from Jesus. They're in glory. Yeah, they're in his glory they're there with Jesus. Jesus is very different from Moses and Elijah. And you know what? It's interesting because the, the appearance of Moses and Elijah there in the same place, same time with Jesus, it kind of puts to rest the theory of the crowds. Remember that? Back in, in Caesarea Philippi where Jesus said, who do the people say that I am? And they decided, well, you know, Elijah is really popular. Some people, maybe Moses or one of the prophets. Well, kind of hard for him to be either of those. Jesus kind of puts that to bed right there. No, he's not those. He is the Messiah. Notice what they're talking about. The cross. That's his departure. You see, the next time Jesus goes to, to Jerusalem, his departure from Jerusalem will not come by traveling to Damascus or traveling to Jericho or traveling into the wilderness. His departure from Jerusalem will come via the cross. Of course, that's what they would speak of. That which was going to become the pivotal event of all of history, that which was the fulfillment of all the law that Moses had given, that which was the fulfillment of the hope of all the prophets of whom Elijah was one. So in verse 33, we see, as the two men were departing from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. You can just kind of hear the enthusiasm. I mean, Peter gets it. This is not a normal day. You know, you're probably going to remember this day. Everything about it, every detail is going to be embedded in your mind. This is a very good day. And so he says, let's, let's set up three shelters, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And then Luke comments, not knowing what he was saying. Yeah, here's, here's the thing. This, this whole situation, it had to have be, been it just extremely overwhelming. More than Peter, the others could process. I mean, who's to blame him? How could he have comprehended, grasped this situation? And so he does what we are far too often prone to do. He doesn't know what to say, and he doesn't let that stop him. Right? Right, don't we do that? And wouldn't we be so wise to come to this realization that sometimes the best thing to say 
is nothing, right? Proverbs 17, 28, even a fool keeps silent, is considered wise. Or as the proverb says, you know, people already think you're a fool. Don't open your mouth and confirm it for them. Well, God is gracious. He just leaves Peter's suggestion unanswered. God just kind of moves on. Isn't he gracious to us like that? Do you ever have great ideas for God and he just kind of moves on? It's like, okay, no, we're not doing that. Just shh, shh, quiet now. And so we read in verse 34, while he was saying this, a cloud appeared and overshadowed them. They became afraid as they, they entered the cloud. Why was this? Why were they afraid? What, what were they afraid of? Were they afraid of rain or maybe of lightning? No, 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 no. This was no mere cloud. Then the disciples, they, they understood this. In Matthew 17 tells us in describing this that the, the disciples sensed that this was far more than just a normal cloud. They fell on their faces and they were terrified. Why? This cloud was what the Old Testament calls the Shekinah. It was that, that visible representation that denoted the presence of God, the very presence of God Almighty. And so the disciples, understanding the power and the holiness of God, as they are engulfed by this cloud, they are engulfed by the presence of God, they fall on their faces overwhelmed because they get it. They get it that God is glorious and holy and powerful, and they're not. And so they respond in great reverence and honor and worship, and they bow before him. Verse 35, then a voice came from the cloud. This is my son. The chosen one listened to him. So God spoke. God spoke. And he said of Jesus, this is my son. He is made of the same stuff that I am. This is God in human flesh. This is the chosen one, the Messiah, the anointed, the Savior. God himself affirms what Jesus has openly declared to his disciples. Understand, understand what God says here. Jesus is not a religious leader for us to admire. He's not a, a spiritual mentor for us to learn from. He, he's not a great man for us to emulate. He is God Almighty in human flesh, and he is to be worshipped without reserve. He is to be submitted to without limitation. And he is to be reverenced to the greatest degree. So let me ask this. How would you define the dynamic 
of your relationship with Jesus? Do you admire him? Do you want to learn from him? To, do you find yourself picking and choosing from his words and his ways? Do you want to emulate his love and his goodness? Those are all good responses, but none of them are nearly enough. None of them are nearly enough to be appropriate of the relationship of God Almighty who laid down his life in our place. The relationship that we are to have with Jesus again, it is one of complete submission, of thankful love, and open worship. Look at verse 35. After the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. They kept silent and at that time told no one what they had seen. What an amazing day. What an incredible experience. And yet, like so many things, just like that, it was over. It was over. And they were looking back at it instead of looking at it. And for a while, it seemed like it had never even happened because Jesus had forbid them to tell anyone. Mark 9, 9 tells us that Jesus told his disciples to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man, the Son of Man has risen from the dead. They never forgot, did they? This changed them. It changed how they saw Jesus. It changed how they saw themselves. It, it, it changed everything. And so after the resurrection, they did tell. They told everyone they could. In fact, John much later wrote about it in his gospel. There in that first chapter, it's like John couldn't wait. It, this didn't happen until way late in the ministry. But John's like, yeah, I got to bring this up, like right up front. And so right there, chapter 1, verse 14 he, he's talking about the word or, or God becoming flesh and made his dwelling among us. And then John says this, we've seen his glory. We've seen his glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John says there is no doubt. There is no mistaking it. This man, Jesus, that we all know about this, this Jesus of Nazareth who died on the cross, we saw the reality of his glory, and this was no mere man. This was God in human flesh. Peter was rocked by this as well. Peter, in his, in his second letter, 2 Peter chapter 1, he also tells about what he saw. He says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father. Now think about that. I give honor and glory to someone, that doesn't say much, right? You find somebody important who gives honor and glory to someone, now that says a little bit more. God the Father gave honor 
and glory to Jesus. When the voice came to him from the majestic glory, that cloud that so terrified them, saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We ourselves, Peter says, we heard this. We heard this with our own ears there upon the sacred mountain. Peter says, I heard it, and I'll never forget it. I'll never forget what it sounded like when God spoke. Dear friends, let's take one thing from this passage. Jesus is God, and because he is God, he is worthy of our unreserved worship. He is deserving of our unlimited submission. And nothing less than our full and complete surrender to him is fitting. He's glorious. Now, in light of all of this, I want to shift gears from our passage, and I want to talk about some, some very practical application as it relates to uh, the world that we are living in right now. Because, you see, as Christians, as Paul said to the Romans, we're not going to be like this world. We're not going to be conformed by its mold. We're not going to decide the way the world decides. We're not going to respond the way the world responds, but we are to be transformed by God's Holy Spirit. I want to explain to you uh, a bit of the process and how we have landed, where we have landed as a church in regard to the mask mandate um, that was handed down this last week. You see, as we look at this, our grid is different than the world's grid. We don't think about the same dynamics as much as this world does. Quite honestly, our grid, the, the thing that we are focused on, is what does Scripture say? What does Scripture say? That, that is the key dynamic with this. This is the thing that sets us apart. Uh, science matters, but it is not the driver in our discussion. Constitutionality, that matters, but it is not the key issue for us. <laughs> Politics are certainly in play here but they are not the deciding factor for those who are followers of Christ. The thing for us is this. What does Scripture say? What does Scripture say? Well, Scripture says that we are to submit ourselves to our human governing authorities. We don't like that one very much, do we? I mean, no one picks that for their life verse. You know, that, that's, I have not gone into any of your homes and seen that in nice calligraphy on the wall. 
You know, this is not our favorite passage. And yet here, it's in Romans 13. Paul writes it in the midst of being under Nero, who was nuts. He, he writes about it to Titus, and he tells him the same thing, that, that he's to be subject, that he's not to be rebellious. First Peter, probably written under Domitian, who, I mean, Nero was nuts, but Domitian was deadly. And yet they say the same thing to us. Oh, now we do understand from the context of the whole of Scripture, uh, from looking at passages like Acts 5.29, where the disciples look the Sanhedrin in the eyes and they say, oh, we will obey God rather than obey you. Oh, we look at passages like Daniel chapter 1, where Daniel says, I will not eat these foods that you've given me because they are clearly forbidden foods. You look at Daniel chapter 3, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, besides having really cool names, they chose the flames rather than the forced worship of an idol of Nebuchadnezzar. Dear friends, those days are coming for us when we will look to them for inspiration and strength. We know that scripture tells us exceptionally that we are not to submit to authorities when they order us to sin. As Christian citizens, we are normally to obey the governing authorities, even when we don't want to, even when we don't agree with what they mandate even when it's a pain in the backside. Thankfully, we also live in a country where we are free to respond to laws that we don't agree with. We can and we should vote. We can and you may want to protest. We can and maybe we should go to the courts. And we can and maybe some of you should run for office. We have avenues of approach to bring change to situations that we do not like. So, as followers of Christ, how are we to respond to this mandate? You know, there is not universal medical consensus as to whether it is going to be helpful or even harmful. Uh, much, to the much of the response to this virus it seems to be nothing more than a, a political power grab. And though what I learn as I look into those issues will certainly determine whether I support or oppose this mandate, yet, because it is the law and because I belong to Christ, and because this law does not ask me to sin against God, as a follower of Christ, I don't see how I can justify not obeying. I don't like that, but I think that's why God put it in his word. He knew I wouldn't do it if he didn't. Remember, this, this does not leave us helpless. We can oppose this mandate in ways uh, that thankfully are provided 
by our system of government. What we can't do is merely find loopholes or technicalities that keep us from getting into trouble when we are simply disobeying something we don't want to do. That misses the point. You see, it's not to government or to law enforcement that we are accountable. It's to God. It's not government or law enforcement that commands us to submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him. That's 1 Peter chapter 2. You see, it is to God that I am accountable, and it is for the sake of God that I obey. I don't like the mask mandate. I don't think it's going to be helpful. Thankfully, the word does not forbid me to respond as long as I am loving and respectful. Please don't be the guy hauled off by the sheriff's deputy for yelling profanities in the public meeting, okay? That does not honor Christ. But I can do something about laws that I don't agree with. What isn't an option for us is to just play by our own rules because scripture doesn't leave that for us. Wearing a mask is a pain in the rear. It, it could be unhealthy, though I have to admit it's probably not as bad for me as the beef brisket I had for dinner last night that was delicious. But it's not sin. It doesn't stop me from worshiping, from gathering, from witnessing, from living out my faith. Here's the dynamic we need to watch for. You know, the enemy, his constant and unwavering objective in every situation is to derail the church. That is always his objective, to divide and to destroy. He wants, he wants that in this situation as well. He is happy to do it by creating laws that will bind us up. And so we cannot just sit back and be observers of government. Or he is happy to get us so focused on these bad laws that we abandon our focus on the thing that we're supposed to be focused on, the kingdom of God. Don't let the enemy get you so absorbed in this that you don't even notice that your attention, your focus, your energy, your heart has been pulled away from representing Christ. Because that, my friends is your job. You are ambassadors of Christ. That's what you're here for. My main job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That's Ephesians chapter 4. And in Matthew 28, 20, I, I find that, that I am called to make disciples, to baptize them, and to teach them to obey everything that Christ has commanded of us. I must teach what Scripture teaches. I can't see that any other response to this situation is faithful to Scripture. And so graciously, I want to challenge you.
I want to challenge each of you to respond, not according to what you want or don't want, not according to what you think or don't think, but according to what God's word says. Dear friends, this is what we are to base our lives on. We must hold to biblical truth and set all else in a secondary place. You know, I was shocked to find out that you all don't attend this church because of my stunning good looks. I was told that you attend because we stick to the word of God. And you know what? We really like it when we stick to the word of God when the world is off doing something else. It's like, yeah, we're going to be faithful. But when God's word cuts at our rebelliousness, when God's word speaks to our hesitation, we don't like it very much. In fact, I don't like it at all. But this is what we're called to. So, this is how we operate as a church. We graciously require leadership to obey biblical teaching. And with the body, we patiently confront, encourage, and help them to understand so that they can learn to obey those same truths. And so I am asking our staff and our volunteers, if it is not a, a, a medical hardship, to please wear masks when appropriate. We are not going to turn anyone away, okay? We want everyone here to be hearing God's word. It is not our job to enforce nor provide masks. That isn't what we're here to do. We're here to teach the word of God, to encourage each other, and to worship the king. And we want you here doing just that. I want to encourage you, as the body of Christ, whether you like what I've said or not, to accept God's word. And I want to encourage those of you who are a little bit fired up about this, who sense God's calling to invest your time and your energy to exercise your constitutional rights and address this thing. I hate this. I hate this because it, it eats up time and energy that I would rather we were giving to the gospel. I hate this because it has caused division within the body. There will be those who no doubt will respond negatively to this. And it makes ministry complicated. but it's not my call. It's a clear teaching of Scripture that we are to be submissive to those that God has placed in leadership over us. <laughs> I don't want to wear a stinking mask, but I'm gonna. Not for the government. Maybe a little bit for you. But 
for God. Because that's what it says. That we do this not because it's our call, but because of him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. God, I pray that you would help us to wrestle through this stuff that is hard for us. I thank you, Lord, for your grace, for your mercy. God, that you never quit working with us. God, I thank you that in this time we see the church being sifted. And Lord, I sense that you're going to sift us too. That you will leave none unsifted. That your desire through this, this chaos that we are experiencing is that you would move us forward, each and every one of us, Lord, to a stronger relationship, a deeper submission, a more sincere worship, because you are worthy. You are worthy of every bit of worship that we can pour out. Work in us, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.